Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We are super excited tonight to welcome back to the store the, uh, I think, over 20 New York Times bestsellers. Over 500 New York Times bestselling novels sold. Exactly. Sold well more books than McDonald's has ever served hamburgers or made them. They also taste better. Um, We're super excited to have him tonight to sign Archmage. I'll go ahead and hand it over. One quick thing, though. We do have plenty of books in the back. You uh, do not have to purchase them before you get them signed. It's super cool, though, if you purchase them before you leave the store, though. So um, with that, please join me in welcoming R.I. Salvatore. Hi. Yes, if you purchase books, you can just give me the money. Is that how it works? No, you don't want to do that. Um, it's good to be here. I, I haven't been to Tattered Cover in a lot of years. I haven't been to Denver in a lot of years. I think the last time I was in Denver, I was at the media play downtown. So that was a long time ago. I don't know why. It just seems like I'm always on the West Coast, which is okay, but it's good to be back in Denver. Um, every time I, I remember the first time I came in here and I was thinking, I'm going to Denver, mountains, Denver, and I flew in and I'm like, it's flat. <laughs> anyway. Um, yes, the book, Archmage or Archmage. We have this fight going on as to whether it's Archmage or Archmage because is it Archangel or Archbishop? We don't know. We don't care. It's a Dritz book and it's fun. Um, the first book of the Homecoming series because that's what they're calling it. Um, this series means a lot to me though. This, 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 I don't want to say this series, but this phase of Dritz existence means a lot to me because I've been writing these books since 1987. Um, I was 28 years old when I wrote the first book. I'm 56 now, so half my life, literally, spent with these characters. And get it literally? Um, never mind. Um, the, I've watched them grow, and I've put them through a lot because that's what you have to do to keep them growing. And now I'm at a point where there's, something, there's one last thing I need to do with Dritz, and I need to do it right now. And so this series is really important to me. And I think it's going really well. Maestro is done. Maestro is the second book uh, of this trilogy. And that'll be out in the spring. I don't know if it's March or April. I think it's April, but it could be March. So don't quote me on that. And then I'm working on the third book in the series now, which should be out in October of next year. Uh, Writing it on planes, jetting around the country every day. I'm on a plane every day. Um, And I'm terrified of flying. So I put on the headphones, open up the computer and just go away and I'm not on the plane anymore. I'm in Faerun, which is less scary. <laughs> um, so I'll just tell you some of the other things I'm working on. I think I'm going to be working on. I'll just open it up for questions because that's a lot more fun for me just to see what you guys want to talk about. And we can talk about anything from Star Wars to the books to the writing process, whatever you want to talk about. I don't care. Football might get a little dicey. Sorry. Um, uh, but uh, so I've got the, the Dark Elf books. This will be, next year will be the last year there are two 
dark elf books for a while at least i've been doing two a year for about five years now so i'm always on a deadline but i don't want to do that anymore because there's i want to do a lot of little things i want to do some comics i want to do some maybe do a screenplay maybe do um you know anything else that comes up that might be fun somebody asked me to be in an anthology that has a really great theme to it i don't want to always have to say no you know, I get invited into these very great anthologies. You know, we're doing we're doing dinosaurs meet zombies, and I'm like, I gotta say no. Well, I would probably say no to that one anyway. But you know what I'm saying. Um, and I want to be able to. I want to have the time to just kick back a little bit and relax and say, what do I feel like writing today? That's different. Comics. He likes comics. Um, so one of the other things that I did recently to do something different is I did a Kickstarter about two years ago for my Demon Wars Reformation world. I did a game called Demon Wars Reformation, and it's an RPG. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, that type of game, or Pathfinder, but it's um, it's a little different type of system, but it's very portable to those systems if that's what you're playing. And I did it because what happened was when 38 Studios fell apart, the video game company that Kurt Schilling had, I was consulting with them my son was working with them and he had become one of the main designers there and so he's suddenly out of work he winds up moving back home while he's building his own business as an app game designer and i said well you know if you're trying to do all these games and everything why don't we try to do a kickstarter or even if we don't i've got this game i designed about 25 years ago um just because i wanted to and I think it's really cool. And I pulled it out and gave it to him. I said, what do you think? And he looked at it, he read it, and he came back the next day. He goes, well, it sucks, but I can fix it. <laughs> my boys love me. They really do. And he did. He fixed it. And my group started playing it, and we started having a blast because there's so many more things you can do than just roll a dice to see if you hit or subtract hit points when you get hit. And we had such fun playing this game. We said, you know what? Well, let's kickstart this. And so we did. We did the Kickstarter, and it, it went really well. And... Um, one of the reach goals was write a, I would write a novella in the Demon Wars world. Now, the Demon Wars world, I broke up with TSR back in the mid-90s, around 1994, over creative differences, very severe creative differences. And Del Rey called me, um, Owen Locke over at Del Rey, and said, look, we want you to come here, and we want you to take as long as it takes you to write the best book you can write. Well, that was music to my ears, because I was doing three books a year at that time. And I was like, okay. So I went in and I wrote a seven-book series. It was supposed to be six books, supposed to be two trilogies, but I found out in the middle I needed a bridge book. So it became a seven-book series called Demon Wars. And I love it. I mean, it's like, it's my Shannara, my Middle Earth, my Forgotten Realms. If I want to blow up a city, no one will stop me. If I want to kill a main character, there's no pushback from anyone except the readers, but too bad. Um, <laughs> the... So I was in complete control of it, and I loved it. And it, it did everything I wanted to do in a book series. It, it, I had the gemstone magic system, which is in the game. Gemstones control the magic in the world. Um, I de designed the Abelican Church, which is the, supposed to be the moral center of the world. Um, but is it? Because it's kind of got these competing factions, and there's a lot of corruption in the church. And so it had everything I wanted in, in the world. And I love the world, and I probably won't go create another world anywhere because I've got this one. So I wrote the seven books. By that time, I was back to the Dark Elf books as well, and I was doing Star Wars, a couple of books for Star Wars. And then I went back to Demon Wars, and I wrote a book called The Highwayman. 
and did the saga of the first king after that. And Highwayman, if I had to name my four favorite books of all, I've written 56 books, I think it is. Maybe I, I lose count, but I think it's 56. If, if I have to count my favorite books, name, my f- four favorite books would be, number one would be Mortalis, which is the fourth book of Demon Wars. And I think it's the best thing I've ever done, and I don't think there's a close second. But number two would, three and four, it depends what kind of mood I'm in. Homeland would be one of them. Because that was really the book where I found out who this dark elf was and what this society was and you know, created something that has obviously kept me going for a lot of years. Um, the Highwayman would be a third because the, the hero in that I think is so relevant and so important and so cool and so genuine. I just, I just love writing about him. And then the fourth would probably be The Companions because to me The Companions felt like the payoff for everything of the Dritz series, for the 25 years of hell I had put them through, for one thing. Um, so those would be my top four books. But anyway, so we kickstart this, and one of the things I said would be a novella, and we hit the reach goal, so I had to write a novella. So I wrote a novella called The Education of Brother Thaddeus. picks up right after the end of Immortalis, which is the seventh book of Demon Wars, which is the main series. Because you get seven books here, and then The Highwayman and those books take place hundreds of years before it. They, they're, not, they're related in that you see the beginning of the Abelican Church, but Demon Wars is really the heart and soul of the world, right, where we flesh everything out. So I, I picked up right at the end of Demon Wars Immortalis with a story called The Education of Brother Thaddeus. And when I started writing, I started thinking, Oh, I miss this place. I really miss this place. And so I'm, I'm going to go back and do some Demon Wars books. And then the cool thing about the novella was that who's read Demon Wars? You've read Demon Wars, I can tell. Um, I mean, I love it. What can I say? Um, the cool thing about the novella is Audible bought it for me. And Will Wheaton read The Education of Brother Thaddeus. And there were two short stories I gave them as well. Will read one of them and Felicia Day read the other one. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then I've got the itch on to go back and do some Demon Wars. So that's coming up. Um, the Reformation game, we tried to do a second Kickstarter, but Kickstarter has changed so dramatically in just a couple of years. And what I mean by that is they've almost said, if you're doing X type of product, here's what you should make for it. And they've kind of set limits on it. And the, everybody donating knows because they're donating to all the Kickstarters in the thing they like. So, for example, if you're doing the follow-up to a game book, you should have a $25,000 seal on it. But when I did the Demon Wars book, I, I, put the, I put the goal high because I didn't want to – and I wouldn't go pay $50 to an art-sharing site, for example – Right? They have these great art sharing sites. And I say great in very big parentheses. Um, where you can pay $50 and they've got 10,000 images that you can take and use. And that's how a lot of these books get filled up in the Kickstarters and the self-published. I wouldn't do that. So I hired Target Lockwood to do some pictures. And I, I hired paintings. I hired Larry Elmore. And I called Donna Parkinson, the widow of Keith Parkinson, who was one of my favorite artists ever, to get some stuff from her. And I hired a lot of the guys I worked with at 38 Studios. And I hired the, the daughter of the woman who laid out all the Wizards of the Coast books. It was her first book. She worked with her mom on it. And I didn't want to print in China. I wanted to print down the street so I could control the quality of the printing. And so even on these exaggerated goals, you barely make any money, but that wasn't the point. You know? But where they want the Kickstarter to be now, 
I'd be working for less than free, or I'd have to not go to Todd Lockwood, not go to Larry Elmore, not get a cover from Scott Duquette, which is fantastic. And, not, and, and I would rather not do it than do it the other way. So we're going to see if we're trying to figure a way to make it work and do another Kickstarter to expand the game because I want to expand the game. Um, so anyway, that's my preach on Kickstarter. A lot of things I want to try, a lot of irons in the fire. You may have heard that there was a lawsuit going on. Um, I guess what happened is that two studios, Universal and Warner Brothers, wanted to do a D&D movie, so they were talking to Wizards of the Coast. Hasbro already had to deal with Universal, or for whatever reason, I'm not privy to these things. Um, Wizards of the Coast and, and Hasbro chose Universal. Warner Brothers was really upset because they really wanted to do a D&D movie, but then they heard that maybe this other guy at Sweet Pea Entertainment had the rights to do D&D movies because he had done a couple already. And so they went with him, and then there was a lawsuit saying, yeah, you don't have the rights, yeah, you do have the rights, and all this big fight started. So that tied everything up for a couple of years, apparently. And the judge wouldn't rule on it, right? The judge said, look, you've got to figure this out. And the reason the judge did this is because if the judge had ruled, she would have been now defining whether a television movie is a proper sequel to a theatrical release. Or is it a sequel if it's not the same characters? Or there were a lot of things she didn't want to rule on because there were a lot of intellectual properties that would have changed hands like overnight, if she, depending on which way she ruled. But they settled it, which is always a good thing. And what it came down to, I read the other day in, in um, Variety or something, is that Warner Brothers got together with Hasbro and they decided to do a D&D movie set in the Forgotten Realms. And they've got a huge budget. And they really, from everything I've heard, they want to do it right. Uh, I have no idea if they're using my characters. I have no idea if they're intending to call me or not. I, there's, so there's really nothing else I know on it except what you read in the papers. Um, of course, I've called Wizards of the Coast, and of course, they've said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know we, we can't tell you anything. Um, so you know, we'll see what happens on that front. But anyway, th- that's, that's the life of Bob now. Um, I'll open it up for questions. Who's got a question? Yeah, see, there's a couple of things going on here. Oh, the question is, yeah, let me repeat the questions because we're a lot of people aren't going to hear that. He wants to know how I can keep going with these characters and keep doing books and I guess keeping it fresh for you and keeping it keeping you interested. Well, the thing the thing about the dark elf books is I did something a little different than those than you see a lot in modern day fantasy. And what I mean by that is the books don't necessarily build upon each other in storyline. You couldn't pick up book five of The Wheel of Time and read it if you hadn't read the first four books. You would have no idea what was going on. Um, You probably could with A Song of Ice and Fire because it's a whole new cast because everybody's dead. But that's a different story. But I always thought of the Dark Elf books more like Sherlock Holmes, James Bond, where I was just taking this group of characters and going down the road and saying, what's next for them? And trying to give complete beginning, middle, and end in every book, even though they're part of a trilogy or part of a quartet or part of a quintet or whatever. And the other thing I've done with the characters is 
like I said, I've been doing this for 28 years. So when I was 28, I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew the answers to everything. And I thought the writer's job is to tell people what's what. No. Now I'm 56 and I know I don't know anything about anything. And I've come to understand the best thing a writer can ever do for anyone is get them to ask the questions of themselves. Because that then they'll find their own answers and their answers may be different than mine and that's perfectly okay. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to bring the characters along with me as my emotional outlook on the world has changed. So too has theirs. And that's the character growth that you see in the books. Um, and the other thing is writing this many books, it's, to me it's almost more like writing a television series. I'm doing the new season of Drift rather than writing a, new, a novel from scratch, which is probably why I've been able to write 56 books because 30 plus of them are the same characters. I know these people. I know, and, and that's the other thing I do with the characters, which I, I find really fun as a writer. Is if I'm, I can't write them out of character. I mean, I know them as well as I know my own family. So sometimes when I'm writing them and they're acting out of character in the book, instead of deleting that, I ask them why. I try to find out what's going on with them. And that leads me to these different side stories that I never expected. It keeps everything fresh and everything exciting. And there are many, many times where I'm sitting there writing and I have to keep writing because I want to know what's going to happen. You know, I have to do an outline. If I don't do an outline, they won't send me a check. It's in the contract. So I do an outline. I send it to my editor. He approves it. They send me a check, and I throw the outline away. <laughs> Except for like the first two chapters and, and the beat points. Because it's shared world, I have to hit the beat points. If I told them I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to Neverwinter, I have to do it so that the, anyone else working there will know big things. But other than that, it's a blank, it's a blank whiteboard, and I'm just going to let the characters take me wherever they want to take me. And have a blast. And things happen all the time that I don't expect. And that's why it's fun for me. And that's why I keep writing. And I assume, I could be wrong, that's why it's fun for a lot of the readers. Because they get to just find out what's going to happen when I find out what's going to happen. There's not a lot scripted in the Dark Elf books. Every now and then I have to script something. Uh, but for example, the companions. I'll try not to spoil anything. I mean, I knew what was going to happen. I knew the. I knew the the entire conceit of the companions. I knew the plot of the companions. I knew what was going to happen. I knew how I was going to approach it. But without giving anything away, this is true. At the end of that book, they're up on the mountain and the panther's ears went back and growled. And I went, holy crap, that's so-and-so. And it was. And he showed up. And I didn't know he was going to show up until it happened in the book. And I was like cheering and, oh, that's awesome. How'd that happen? Thank you. Wait a minute. That's me. Wait, no, wait. <laughs> you lose perspective. <laughs> that's why it's fun for me. And it's still fun for me. I mean, 28 years, all these books, and I'm still, I'm still having so much fun with this. And, and I can find new and better ways to punish them. <laughs> and it occurred to me, just as an aside, that, I'm the youngest of seven. I had an older brother and five older sisters. Think house the warden. Where do you think that really came from? <laughs> My sisters always come up to me and say, I'm Vienna, right? I'm the good one. <laughs> no, you're Breeza. 
Yeah. It's really weird. I think it, you know, i got to be really careful because somebody's going to throw me in a straitjacket. They're going to throw me on the couch, and somebody's going to analyze me and find out why I did that. Because Gygax wrote it that way in the modules. It wasn't my idea to make it an evil matriarchal society. Really? I love my five older sisters. Really? No. <laughs> Actually, I really do. They still come over for coffee. Well, anyway, who else has a question? <laughs> yeah, in the back. From the Dark Elf books in particular? Yeah, I, I don't have any plans because Wizards is – we're going forward. What happened is Wizards is now more than anything else a licensing house. They have oh, – and by the way, we've got these bookmarks up here for the Neverwinter game. And – well, I have to say this. This has nothing to do with me. But – and for the Legends of the Sword Coast game. And on the bookmarks that are all over the floor now, there are codes to redeem items. So if you're interested in playing those games, you get free goodies apparently. Uh, I don't know anything about – what they're doing with these, they asked me to bring them. I can announce, because it's on there now, that I did do 10 quests for Neverwinter, for the game Neverwinter. So if you like a couple of dwarves, particularly one with a helmet spike who's kind of crazy and you'd like to go on an adventure with him, and you kind of like some of the magic items that the companions have and there's one that you might want to get for your character, you probably should play those quests. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but... Yes, for me, yes. I would love to do a side story. I would love to do a whole series on Brother of Fafrimfir, the monk. I love him. Okay, I love him. Um, and it's funny to me that there's something about him that most people completely missed. Because it just was kind of natural in the books. But I'll leave that at that, unless somebody else can figure it out. I love the monk. And I would love to do an entire series on the Monastery of the Yellow Rose and what he's going through with Grandmaster Kane and all this stuff. That would be very cool. I would love to write a book with Zach Nefane and Jarl Axel 100 years before Dritz born. Back in old Menzel Berenzon, first edition D&D rules, Infravision is back. You know, the drow are still monsters. I, Bob Salvatore hasn't yet ruined them and gotten 4,000 hate, hate-filled emails from DMs around the world saying, every kid that comes up to my table wants to play a good-aligned ranger with two scimitars and a black panther that's not dressed. <laughs> to which my answer is always the same. Do like we do in my group. I don't allow drow. <laughs> it's easy. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I, there's a million. Um, that character in The Companions, I'd really like to find out how he got there. The one that I didn't know was going to be there. Um, there's a whole bunch of stories I'd like to write about Regis and House and Marada Topolino over in Aglarond, because what's cooler than a halfling grandmother of assassins or grandfather of assassins? And, and it's just it's just fun. I mean, it's just fun stuff. So there, yeah, I could, I could think of off the top of my head in about an hour, I could write you 50 or 60 storylines I would like to pursue. And some of them probably surprise you, but most of them I think you can probably figure out. Um, I fall in love with every character I write, even the ones who are going to die. I fall in love with them, and by that I mean I want to know what's inside their head. I just don't want to know how hard they can hit you with a sword. I want to know what's inside their head and why they're acting the way they're acting, because there's usually a reason. And that's what makes this whole thing an exploration for me. 
So there's a million characters over the 20, you know, 30 something books, 36, I think, Forgotten Realms books. I'd like to go back to Joan and uh, Maimon from the um, Stone of Tomorrow trilogy that I wrote with my son Gino. He created these two characters, Joan and Maimon. Joan, uh, I mean, Maimon, there it is, is in, in the stowaway, which takes place at the same time as Halfling's Gem. It's, the half, it's a big part of the Halfling's Gem, but from a different perspective. And like I wrote some of the scenes, and one of them that I wrote was this dwarf on the fly, a flaming chariot crashing into a pirate's ship, as seen by Maimon in the hold of a different ship going, what was that? Um, so, I mean, I'd love to go back to those characters because I'd have to bring Gino back in because he knows them better than I do. But I love those characters. I did bring Maimon back in The Pirate King a little bit. Um, but uh, there's some interesting stories there. So, yeah, I mean, if they ever let me run wild, maybe I'll do 15 novellas because I don't have time to write 15 more books, I don't think. Who else has a question? Yes. That's all up to the licensor. Oh, are there any plans? I got to keep remembering to repeat this so people can hear it. Everybody's yelling at me in the back there. Um, are there any plans to do any more graphic novel, uh, graphic novelizations of the novels? Um, I don't know because that's anything like that is up to the licensor and the publisher. I mean, I I got I was very lucky to be able to write two graphic novels that tied into the story. Like um, the story of Thibbledorf Point and how he became a, an undead thing in the Neverwinter Tales. And the story of um, Cutter, the sword, Kazadhi, which actually that's the story that begins the War of the, of the Silver Marches. And it's only in the graphic novel, Cutter, that I got to write with Gino again. Um, and then they did some wonderful – I thought Andrew Dabb and Tim Seeley did amazing adaptations of the, of the Dark Elf books and the Icewind Dale trilogy. Um, I, I'd love to do it. And, but again, it's up to whoever holds the license and what they have room for and what they're looking to accomplish. And you know, it, it, that, all those things are out of my control with Forgotten Realms books. Another reason I like Demon Wars. Maybe I'll do a Highwayman highway graphic novel. I think that would rock. Um, the other thing that's going on is Heavy Metal Magazine has actually been – I've been talking with them quite a bit. They would love me to come over and do some graphic, completely different, wild graphic novels with them for heavy metal. And um, that's really intriguing to me because they've, they've kind of pulled all the stops off that magazine. They just don't let you go out and, and ramble and have fun with it. So I'd love to. Um, hopefully I'll have time to do it when people call, which is another reason why I know more two books under schedule every year. Because like if I do another Demon Wars book, it won't be on a schedule. It won't be. It'll be. I'll be writing the book, then I'll sell it, as opposed to having a deadline. So we shall see. Lots and lots to do. Who else has a question? Yes. The question is, has the timeline remained consistent through all my books? Um, no. <laughs> um, and and that's, that's not necessarily my fault. Uh, it was originally, when, I, when I, wrote the, I wrote the Crystal Shard first, right? And if you read the Crystal Shard, the original version of the Crystal Shard, and then go back and read the Dark Elf trilogy, you'll see that there's a discrepancy in how many years, for example, Dritz was living in Menzo Baranzan. 
I had to make that change when I went back to write the prequel because to me, if I didn't do it the way I did it, the character made less sense. It was almost like everyone thought he had been there that long and now he's telling me, no, 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 it's really happened this way. So that was the one time where there were changes in the story. Writing prequels is tough. Um, But other than that, the timeline continually changes in the realms. They're trying to fix that. They're trying to stop doing that, essentially. Of course, fourth edition came along and and jumped the world 100 years ahead, which really messed everything up. Um, So now, and one of the things, this is actually a funny side story to that. When we were sitting there doing the Sundering Summit, so it was Ed Greenwood, myself, Troy Denning, Richard Lee Byers, Paul Kemp, Aaron Evans, the six authors that were going to do the Sundering books. And there were all the game designers, uh, Mike Merles, James Wyatt, uh, Chris Perkins, and then the brand team and uh, some of the artists. We were all in a room doing that. What was really cool is when we started figuring out what we wanted to do with the books, we noticed that the names, and this happened after the fact, the names of the years – that were in the old Forgotten Realms thing that Ed Greenwood had done like 30 years ago. The names of the years were lining up with events. Like, it was terrifying for him. Like, Wait a minute. But they, um, there have been multiple timelines put out on the Forgotten Realms. I can't ever get a straight answer to them either. They're trying to fix that. But every time they fix it, there are unintended problems. You know, unintended consequences of, of changing things. For example, one of the things they changed in Dungeons & Dragons is the lifespan of an elf. Well, a lot of the realm's timeline was based on the long-living elves who, you know, he was here and then a thousand years later he was here and then he died 1,200 years after that type of thing. If you change all that, what happens to all those old stories? And that's, that's one of the challenges of working in shared world when you have so many different people. I mean, I don't think there's anybody up at Wizards of the Coast now. I don't think there's a single person up there anymore that's been involved in the realms, realms longer than I have. Um, it was TSR. And then they mo- half the company moved up to Wizards of the Coast. The other half didn't. And gradually over the years, it just keeps changing people. There's a lot of turnover. There's no editor, editor up there, book editor up there, or realms coordinator up there that knows the realms from 1987 any better than anyone else reading the realms from 1987. The only person who really does is Ed Greenwood. And he's got a million other things he's working on, too. He's not going to stop and fix everything. Um, so there is a part where you have to just kind of let it slide, I think. And, and it can get confusing. I agree. Believe me, if you think you can get confused... How do you think I felt when they told me that there's no more InfraVision? <laughs> well, how does Narbrandell work? Oh, it just glows. Boring. Um, you know, I, it, it's... Well, I remember as the, as the... I think it was third edition came out, and all of a sudden dragons are these like CR25 monsters, and they're these big... And I got all these letters saying, how could Wolfgar and Dritz fight a white dragon and win? They're, they're CR7 and 14, and the dragon's CR25 or whatever it was. And I'm, like, and I'm like, have you ever read the Monster Manual? White dragons were nothing. <laughs> um, but those kind of things change. Well, I remember fourth edition. I'm like, what the heck's a tiefling? Oh, no, they've been there all along. Really? We've written 400 books in the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> over 30 years and nobody noticed 
that like a third of the population of this city were tieflings? Really? <laughs> but that's shared world, man. Shared world. Shared world. I mean, I kill Wookiees and they come back to life, right? <laughs> Disney got me off the hook. I was terrified I was going to put on my... He killed Chewie, the bastard. But nope, Chewie is now a Disney princess and I'm off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has a question? Right there. Uh, do you find the chapters from this point of view or from the, uh, the more narrative chapters to be more invigorating to write? Does that affect what order you write them in? Oh, the question is, do I find the, the chapters from third person, right, the, just the basic third person narrative view, um, more or less invigorating than the Dritz essays that begin every section? Uh, the Dritz essays wear me out. And they're my favorite part of writing. But they wear me out. Um, they are – because I not only have to define in my heart what I believe, I then have to see it through his distorted vision. So I might have to make a case for something that I don't believe because that's what he would believe at the time. And it is, it is incredibly difficult. And I think a lot of people read those essays the wrong way. I think a lot of people read those essays as if Dritz is talking to them. And preaching at them, if you will. That's not what it is at all. He's looking in the mirror. He's talking to himself. Right? I mean, he's, he's trying to make sense out of the world. That often makes no sense to him. I think most of us can agree with that, right? I mean, I think a lot of people are in that position these days. Um, it wears me out, but I love it. I mean, I've been begging wizards for years. Why don't you take all the Dritz essays? Put them in one book. Just the Dritz essays. Maybe get Paul Godallen, who used to be the reviewer for BNN for many, many years and loves the Dark Elf series and gets it. Maybe get Paul Godallen to do a to do the, the Tao of Dritz and and take on the essays. I, I got goosebumps. And they say, nah, we don't have room for that. <laughs> um and it's funny, when I did the Dark Elf trilogy, when I went back to do the Dark Elf trilogy, my initial thought was I'm going to do it first person. First person is incredibly difficult, especially if you're a visual writer. Because when I'm doing a battle scene, which I love to write, I've got 25 different things going on in 25 different places. And if Dritz is over here fighting and I'm seeing it, the entire book through his eyes, and I want to say what's going on with Bruner. If he turns and looks at Bruner, he's dead. That doesn't work. You can't do that. So I decided, no, I'll leave, I'll leave first person to Roger Zelazny, who no one's ever done it better. He's brilliant. The Corwin books, the Chronicles of Amber, are amazing. Uh, I'll leave first person to Zelazny. I'll do my, my, what I'm more comfortable with, but I'll do essays to just try and get into this guy's head a little bit more. And it became my favorite part. Yes. No, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> um, the question is about the battle scenes. Did I go to various martial arts studios? And I, um, how, did I, how do I do these battle scenes? I was a bouncer. I paid my way through college as a bouncer. Um, and I play hockey for all my life. And I watch sports. 
I love sports. I love watching the physical genius of athletes. And that includes like when I was younger, the Ali Frazier fights and the other, the great boxing matches of the seventies. Right. And fencing. I, I signed my kids up for fencing lessons. And while they were out on the mat beating the crap out of each other, I was, in, I was interviewing the instructor, um, to, to get, because I wanted to do Benel de Sada, which is the elven sword dance in demon wars. How do these little elves with these slender blades go up against these guys in armor with claymores? Well, because they're quicker. And they know how to hit. Um, so I was a boxer in high school. I was a bouncer. That's how I paid my way through college. I did take martial arts until my knee blew up one of the many times. My knee has blown up. Um, and did some fencing. Um, watching. <laughs> because my knee would blow up. Um, but that's about it. And other than that, I just pay attention. I pay attention to where they, I, I pay attention to where their body is turned, where their ba- center of balance is, because balance is everything in the fight. Anyone who's ever fought will tell you that where your hands are is important because you got to protect your face for one thing, but where your legs are is everything in the fight. Because if you've got balance, you hit harder and you don't get hit as hard. It's that simple. Um, and that's how I do it. And then I just watch the fight in my head and I write down what I see, and it's a lot of fun. Yes. Um, so earlier you mentioned like screenplays and some other stuff like that that you would be possibly like pursuing in the future. Sure. You thinking like adaptations or more like original work? Maybe both. Uh, the question is, am I, what am I thinking of when I say screenplays that I might be interested in doing in the future? And um, maybe both. I think The Highwayman would make an amazing movie. I think Demon Wars would make a great TV show like HBO or Stars or something. And although I'll never tell you who I want to be play an actor in the movie because if they pick someone else, um, you know, everyone will say it'll be all over the internet. He wasn't Bob's first choice. And I'll get into that whole Anne Rice, Tom Cruise thing going on. No, thank you. Um, but having said that, um, I'm now finishing up Battlestar Galactica for the first time. And I am absolutely adoring Outlander. Have you, who watches Outlander? It's it's like amazing television. So if anybody knows Ron Moore, <laughs> I would love for Ron Moore to do Demon Wars on TV because that guy gets character like nothing I've seen. He's pretty fantastic. Um, other than that, who knows? I, I whatever whatever the opportunities present themselves, I'm willing to listen at this point in time because I'm just looking for new challenges and some fun. You know, this whole thing's fun. It's a lark to me. If it wasn't, then I wouldn't have been doing it for this long. Um, so I'm not going to say no to anything. Well, I'm not going to say no to listening about an idea for anything. But the My, My Little Pony movie is right out. That's not me. <laughs> yes. What's the best advice I can give to an aspiring author? If you can quit, quit. I'm not being funny. If you can quit, quit. If you can't quit, you're an author. Because you don't do this for fame and fortune, especially not today where hundreds of thousands of people are self-publishing and there's so much noise out there, the chances of even getting noticed through it are minuscule. You don't do this 
to think you're going to make a living at it. It's got to be plan B. People write to me and say, I want to be a, I want to be a writer. I'm going to college. What should I take? And I say, engineering. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I want to be a writer. I say, I'm serious too. Get a job that'll pay the bills. And then writing is your passion that you do at night. Unless somehow you slip through this swarm and get through the, and, and get the job and, and can sell and make some money at it. Most writers aren't full-time employees of writing. <laughs> they are, they are, that's their night job. They have a day job. And that's true of authors you know and have heard of and have read and loved. Um, but when I say if you can quit, quit. Because if you can quit, you're not a writer. A writer can't quit. It's how we make sense of the world. We have stories clawing at the inside of our skin trying to get out. We're never going to be happy unless we get those stories out. We'll probably never be happy because the stories won't stop. That's being a writer. If you can walk away from that, then that's the easy part. The hard part is waking up every morning and knowing you've got a term paper due and you haven't started it yet because that's what it is to be a writer. The hard part is writing something you've put you. I always say to writers, being a writer is like running naked through Times Square at noontime. Because you're putting yourself out there. You can't say, no, that's not what I meant. Because if that's the way they read it, that's what you wrote. It's, it's on you. There's no place to hide when you're a writer. So if getting that one-star review at Amazon is going to bother you, thicken your skin. You don't write to get people praising you your books on Amazon. Or at any other site, for that matter. You, you don't write to be standing here in tattered cover talking to people. You write because you have to write. And since you have to write, if you do something and it seems like it's pretty good, you might as well try and sell it so they'll pay you to write again. And maybe eventually you can quit that day job and write more because it's what makes you happy. And if it's not what makes you happy, and by that, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to be happy every time you sit down to write. There's an old saying in writing that I hate to write. I love to have written. And there's, very, there's a lot of truth in that too. But if that's not why you're doing it, then get out now. Save yourself incredible heartache. Um, now, on a more practical level, and I tell this to everyone, no matter what you're doing, if you're doing a piece of writing and you want to make sure it's the best you can do, read it back to yourself out loud. Read it back to yourself like you're reading it to someone else. Don't just go through the words. Read it. Enunciate each word because when you do that, you'll catch every typo. You'll find the verbal repetitiveness because it will slow you down. You'll find the sentence fragments that seem to go nowhere. You'll find a lot of the undefined pronouns. Wait a minute, which hymn was I talking about? You'll find those things when you do that. So that's just a general exercise that everyone should do when they're writing an important letter, a term paper, or a book. Questions? You've already asked. Let me get someone else. I'll come back to you if, if we get that. Okay. Your DM hates you. So imagination and writing and creating, you know, that was certainly influences. I'm just wondering, was D&D and what other writers for you? What were my influences? What made me my imagination soar is the question. Um, I actually started college as a math computer science major because when I was a little kid, like – Pre-K even, I was reading The Wind in the Willows, and I had this amazing collection of Charlie Brown books. I love Charlie Brown. And I have first editions, and I still have them, and they'll never be on eBay unless my kids betray me when I'm gone. Um, I love Charlie Brown. The older I get, the more I realize that Charlie Brown was right about just about everything. 
Um, and so I had to, I had to deal with my mom that I could bag. If I was getting straight A's, she let me bag school and stay home and read my books, which was awesome. This was first grade, and and I loved reading. And then school beat the love of reading right out of me. We didn't even read books most of the time. I was in classes, and they gave us this book about this big, and they had like a paragraph of Faulkner that we're going to diagram. A paragraph of Faulkner. First of all, it's a sentence, and it's this big. And second of all, it doesn't tell you anything. Or, I mean, so we weren't... And then when they did give us books, here I am in the eighth grade, and they gave me Ethan Fromm, Silas Miner, Moby Dick, which if you took 70 chapters out, it's a heck of a short story. None of this was relevant to me. None of it. And so by the time I got through high school, I was the only reading I was doing was the reading I needed to do to get a grade, and the only writing I was doing was the writing I needed to do to get the grade. Then I got to college. I'm a math computer science major. And I was actually undeclared, but I was taking all computer. Computer science was new. I was doing COBOL and Fortran and BASIC. Okay? This was all new. And batch cards. I mean, this was all new. This was 1977, right? And that year for Christmas, my sister gave me these books in a slipcase. You know, the slipcase for the paperbacks had three books in it, and there was a fourth book as well. And I looked at it, and I'm like, books? And I had the 69 Mercury Cougar that broke down every day. I needed money. I had to get put snow tires on the car. I didn't have money for snow tires. She'd give me books. I'm like, thanks a lot. And I just threw them aside. And then two months later, up in New England, we had the great blizzard of 78, which we thought was a great blizzard until last winter, and now it just seems like a flurry. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We got 25 inches of snow with blowing and drifting, and there were no roads, and school was shut down for a week. And if you were caught on the roads, you were going to jail. They weren't messing around. So here I was, 19 years old, trapped in my mother's house. <laughs> Yay. Um, but I wasn't. I picked up a book, and I read the introduction by a man named Peter S. Beagle, who I got to meet this year. And he was lovely. And you know when you go to meet someone, and you really looked up to the person, you really care about the person, and you're afraid he's going to be a jerk or she's going to be a jerk and just ruin everything. Peter was, I, I went up and told him my story, and he was absolutely the most gracious man, wonderful man, brilliant man. So thanks. Uh, but I went, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, this. And then I, I turned the page, and I read in the hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Boom. That was it for me. I wasn't trapped in my mother's house. I read that book. The, and the Lord of the Rings three times that week, and I'm not a fast reader at all. It takes me a month to get through a book. Truth. I can write a book as fast as I read a book. I'm not kidding. <laughs> but I read those books, and I would put on the uh, Rumors album, and the chain would be playing, and, and I was sitting there in the window with the sun rising, and I'm reading The Hobbit, and I'm thinking, why didn't somebody give me this book when I was in the eighth grade? Why? Ethan from why? <laughs> so I went back to school and I changed my major immediately to communications media, technical writing, because then all of my electives became lit courses. A year later, I was reading Shakespeare. I was reciting Shakespeare. I was getting Shakespeare. A year later, I was reading um, Chaucer in Middle English and laughing at all the right parts. I was reading Joyce and figuring out why he was the greatest wordsmith ever in the English language, even if he was incomprehensible half the time. But the dead is like the greatest thing ever written in the English language, the novella by Joyce. It's just 
I, I actually remember an assignment. My, my professor dared me. I was, I was like teacher's pet with this guy. We loved each other. We used to go for drinks after class. He, um, he dared me to find a sentence in the dead that you could take out that wouldn't diminish the work. Just a sentence. So find a sentence that doesn't fit. Find a better word for any word in the dead. And I spent a month with that novella. It ain't there. Uh, so every now and then if I get cocky, I read the dead and I'm humbled. Truth. <laughs> Tolkien did it for me. Opened up my world. And to this day, my favorite letters are the ones that begin, I never read a book until. Because if, if somebody read my book and saw something in one of my books that turned him or her into a reader, I just gave that person something really cool. And I know that person will now live a thousand lives, not one. Um, and you know, I guess that's the whole point of being an author, right? I mean, or being anything like this is that if you can leave the world a little better in your wake than, you, than it was when you first walked down it, and that just means one person. I'm not trying to change the world, but if, if I get a letter from a guy in, in, ba- in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan when the wars were going on saying, you know, thank you for giving me your book. It let me forget about what I had to do today and not think about what I had to do tomorrow. If I get a letter from a kid in high school who said, I never had any friends in high school, and I found your companions of the hall, and they became my friends. If I get a letter from somebody, kids or adults, I never read a book until, or I had quit reading, and then I read your book, and now I'm reading again. Those are the kind of things that you wear against the one-star reviews on Amazon as armor, right? Those are the kind of things that remind you why you're sharing what you're doing, the spiritual journey that you're on as a writer. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, but Tolkien did that for me. Hands down, wham. I couldn't put the books down, and I still read them every now and then. I'll pick them up and I'll just start reading all of it. Who else has a question? Go ahead. Uh, you have major shared events in your shared realms. Um, is it up to you to decide how much you get to partake in these? Like the time of trouble, for example. Yeah, in the shared world, we have shared events. And is it up to me how much I partake in them? Um, to an extent, yes. Um, I've kind of made my living in the realms by hiding from everybody else. Right, And most of the authors did that originally because there were too many game products going on. Now it's kind of it's changed a little bit because they always want to be doing this meta theme like Tyranny of Dragons and Rage of Demons, which starts with Archmage. So they'll tell us what they're trying to do. And then our job is really to find, people, find places in the book where we can put in Easter eggs to kind of hint at it. Now the one big exception was Gauntlegrim. When I wrote the book Gauntlegrim, I was getting ready to write the book. They called me up and they said, uh, Bob, are you going to be anywhere near the Sword Coast in your next book? And I said, well, I'm going to be in the crags. I'm usually by the Sword Coast. So sure. He said, um, can you blow up Neverwinter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they flew me out to – I flew out to Wizards and, and Cryptic came in, the people that do the Neverwinter game. And Basically what it came down to, it's a, it's a really simple thing. They had a new company doing the, the third Neverwinter game. They couldn't use the art assets of the old company, Bioware, that had done them. They had to come up with all new art assets. They wanted to do their own look for the game. So the best way to do that, you can just pretend that this is what the city always looked like, or you can just drop a volcano over it and then start it all over again. So they told me what they wanted and what they needed for the game, and I told them how I was going to accomplish it. And they agreed, and the world will never be the same. And I'm still having fun with that storyline all these years later. Okay, I got time for maybe one or two more. Anyone who hasn't asked the question that would like to? Go ahead. I'll get you next. I'll get you next. Go ahead. So with the King series, it always seems like before 
The King series? Yeah, like the Pirate King. Oh, okay, the Pirate King, the Ghost King, the York King, the Pirate King, the Ghost. The King series. I like that. Ah, the heck with it. If you haven't read that, you're 10 years behind. It's on you. <laughs> At some point, you've got to say it's not a spoiler anymore. I remember we went to see the movie Titanic. And we were sitting there through this interminable movie. And he's chained to this bulkhead. Leonardo's chained to this steam pipe or something below decks for like four hours, really. And the water's going a little higher and the music's getting dramatic and Kate Winslet's running around. Ah, where is he? Where is he? And finally my wife just says, we had just sink the ship already. <laughs> and these two young girls in front of us turn around like this and one of them says, why don't you just ruin the whole movie? It's the Titanic! <laughs> what do you think is going... Ah! <laughs> Help. <laughs> it's all I could say. Help. <laughs> Can we just sink the movie theater instead? <laughs> um, unbelievable. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, James Bond is indestructible. Sherlock Holmes is indestructible. Then you kill him, then you bring him back. That's what you do. Um, these characters serve a purpose. And the purpose of these characters is to be friends to a lot of people who have identified with them. And that's not saying that some won't die here and there. And some have. Zach and Vane. And if that's a spoiler, then leave. Um, um, you know, Zach and Vane, Clacker. Some die. And some don't. And the story will tell me when to do that. Um, the Ghost King was really brutal to write. It really was. Well, if you read the forward to that book, I wasn't kidding. I would wake up every morning, and there were three videos I would put on and watch with the headphones on to put me back in the darkest moment of my life. And I was doing it on purpose, and it hurt like heck. And I would watch these three videos, the music videos, and I would just go back to that place, and I would like put the blanket over my head, and I would start typing. And I did that every day for five months writing that book. And I swore I would never go back to that place, but I knew I had to if I was going to do this book right. And I knew what I had to do because of fourth edition. Uh, it was brutal. Brutal. Kind of fun, too. But it was brutal. <laughs> go ahead. Question, will we ever see anything with Armalore again? I don't know. Um, yes, Armalore was the world I created. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to 2006. I was sitting in my house. We were actually doing an e-signing. We do e-signings with each book. I was sitting in my house doing an e-signing, and the phone rings. I pick up the phone. The guy on the other end says, hey, can I talk to Bob Salvatore? So this is Bob. He said, oh, man, I, I can't believe I'm talking to you. You're like my favorite author. This is Kurt Schilling. I was like, screw you. I thought it was my friends messing with my head, right? And he goes, no, 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 it really is. And I, and I got to talk to you about something. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And I looked over. My wife is laughing because his publicist had called early, and she knew he was calling. 
And so she knew, and she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, this is really Kurt Schilling? He's like, I'm a, sorry, Denver, I'm a Red Sox fan. A big one, season ticket guy, and bloody sock guy is calling me out of the blue. And I'm like, this is Kurt Schilling, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And he goes, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. 20 minutes later, <laughs> we're still saying that. And he says he, he's getting ready to retire in a couple of years, and he wants to start a video game company because that's what he loves. And I knew he was a big video game player. He'd done EverQuest on Good Morning America for charity one time, and I was an EverQuest player too. So I, I knew he was a big video game player. So I came in. I put my, I put my team together, and we, we created this 10,000-year history, a massive world called Amalore. And I can't take credit for creating the whole thing. I came up with the skeleton and the history and the, the kind of um, the system of the world and the way it worked and why it worked the way it worked. And I put all that together, and then my team and I fleshed it out. We did this big PowerPoint presentation to the people Kurt was bringing in from Blizzard and Sony and Midway and all these other game companies. He was poaching them, some really fantastic people. And then we put a narrative team together up at 38 Studios, and there's like a 10,000-page wiki on the world of Amalur. And so we were in the middle of making this, this mass morgue, this massive multiplayer online role-playing game, like, like World of Warcraft or EverQuest. And we were making that, and then, and then a couple of years into it, we had the opportunity to buy a company called Big Huge Games because THQ was dumping them, and they basically gave it to us for the close-down costs. And, we, and our... CEO at the time knew, or our president at the time, knew the people who had put Big Huge Games, that studio, together. So we bought the studio, and then EA funded a game for Big, Big Huge Games. So Big Huge Games was working on a single-player AAA game, and they took our intellectual property and mimicked our art assets because they couldn't take our art assets. They had to mimic them because different engines require different things, but... EA paid for them to make this game. And they spent they had to come in under budget and on time, which in video game world is saying, oh my God, right? Because that and they did. And they did a game called Kingdoms of Armalo Reckoning. Now my role in the game, I did not write that game. I did not write that game. I get credit for it. Don't give me credit for it. Give the narrative team at Big Huge Games all the credit for the House of Valor. And the House of Ballads. I wish I had written the House of Ballads because it's brilliant game design. I love the game. I play. I was playing and I was like, oh, this is amazing stuff. But because EA had funded it, the game did really well. It sold almost 2 million copies for a new IP. That's incredible. But we weren't getting all that money and we couldn't find funding for the game that we were doing. And so that 10,000 world... Uh, 10,000 year history, 10,000 page wiki, thousands of art assets, some of the best animation you've ever seen, and all of that sitting on servers in Rhode Island because Rhode Island owns it. Um, there have been people that have approached them about taking it out, but here's the thing: it was a, it was a, they're, they're not doing MMOs anymore because. You can't. The world has changed. It's gone away from that. It's gone to more casual gaming, right? The MMOs, they don't have the audience they used to have, and they cost $100 million to make or more to do them right with the graphics and everything. That's a lot of money. So, in fact, one of the things that's bugged me the most about Kickstarter, this has happened twice now, 
And I've seen it both times. One time I saw a Kickstarter for Pathfinder, for an MMO. And they're going to raise $800,000 or something. And they did. They raised like $1.2 million. And, I'm, and I, knowing the business the way I do, I'm sitting there thinking, they're never going to make an MMO on this. And then another guy sent me an email and he said, can you, um, you know, we've got the studio and we've got, and they had some good pedigree. They had some good designers and everything. And they were doing a Kickstarter for $800,000 for an MMO. And they had already got $1.2 million. He wanted me to advertise the Kickstarter like on my Facebook page. And I went and looked at the Kickstarter and I'm thinking, look at the systems they're promising. And I know what this costs. I watched it happen over five years I worked there. I didn't work there. I consulted there and never got a dime, by the way. But I met some of the best people I've ever met in my life. So I, I wrote back to him and I said, you can't do an MMO for a million dollars. And look at what you're promising. This is a $50 million minimum. This is a $100 million product. Oh, oh, we know that. But we think with the Kickstarter, you know, if we can show the interest, the investors will come on board. Oh, no. I've been down. Because the thing about the Kickstarter is once it funds, you've got the money. And if you don't make the game and just say you tried, you keep the money. So I, that really bothered me a lot because there's no way. There is no way somebody's coming in with $100 million for an MMO today. It just isn't going to happen. So I don't know if we'll ever say anything. I've got a few short stories that I wrote for the team just so they could all be on the same page about what the world smelled like, you know. Uh, I'd like to get those short stories back, but so far Rhode Island won't budge. And I'm not buying the whole thing because I don't have that kind of money, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, probably should start signing some books. Um, thank you all for coming out. I really appreciate it. It's great to be back in Denver, even though we're we're fierce rivals on the football field. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.